Uh, I enjoy listening to a podcast. Uh, it's an economics podcast called Freakonomics Radio, and it addresses issues in our culture and in, in our lives from kind of an economic perspective. And every once in a while, there's an episode on marriage or love. It's always, it's always a little cold to listen to uh, an, a podcast about marriage from an economic standpoint because it sounds very kind of transactional when you think about marriage just in economic terms. But recently, they replayed an episode that was entitled, Why Did You Marry That Person? in which they just explore the forces that bring people together and why, why we marry. Now, most of the time, if we were asked, why did you marry that person, we give a, a simple one-word answer, unless things are not going well. But otherwise, uh, you give a simple one-word answer, right? Love. I married them because I love them. We tend to think that we made our decision out of an enormous pool of people, almost an infinite pool of people. We picked this one person simply because we fell in love. But the podcast episode, it kind of explores some of the more concrete forces that are often at work. Because while we all like a good Cinderella story, it's far more likely that you're going to marry someone who has a lot of similarities to you. For instance, people are far more likely to marry someone who has a similar level of education or someone with a similar economic status to themselves or their family, not to mention the limits that are placed on the pool of eligible spouses by your geography or your religion or your parents or other factors, your neighborhood and, and, and the school you attend and all these things that go into why you chose to marry the person you married. Now, this isn't to say that they're there aren't exceptions to the rules, but that there are a lot of forces at work in deciding on a spouse other than just, I fell in love and, and romance. And if you think you're getting a really wide pool by dating online these days, just consider the potential matches that are now being made by an algorithm, right? A math formula is limiting the people it's showing you. So in, in reality, you're not deciding from everyone. You're a very select few that you're looking at. And that's really no surprise. Uh, though a Pew Research Center survey reports that the number one reason people choose to get married is for love, it's obvious that we mean something different by love today than we even did it maybe a decade ago or, or two decades ago. Certainly, and I hope this is true, when we talk about love in the church, we mean something different by love than what our culture typically means. It seems like people have become increasingly transactional in how they think about love or relationships. And it's true that we were always able to write down a list of characteristics that we wanted in a spouse, but now with online dating sites, you can pare down who you consider based on very specific desires, including their appearance, how tall they are, their income, their interests, their education. Listen, I learned this this week. There is a dating site called Bristle for people who like men with beards, right? If you only like men with beards, this is the dating site for you. You can pare things down so specifically. Now, that's not all bad. It's not bad to pare down uh, who you're interested in. We should have standards for who we marry, but it would seem to add to the idea that you can find someone who fits you perfectly, that you will find your 
soulmate. Now, I hate to burst your bubble today, but your soulmate doesn't exist. Your soulmate just doesn't exist. I don't, I don't think it's true. I think just from a rational standpoint, if you think about the odds of like, what if one person in the history of the world marries the wrong person and the domino effect that sets off for all of us, like it's gone terribly wrong, okay? But not only like the, the kind of weird, rational ideas you can play with it, but I think just from a biblical standpoint, the idea of a soulmate is, is pretty faulty. There isn't one other person who can perfectly fulfill you and compliment you for eternity. And there certainly isn't anyone who is going to fulfill all your idealistic fantasies so that you don't have to change or conform to someone else. Not only is the idea that there is just one person out there somewhere for you, not only is it irrational, it's unbiblical. You see, there's a mystery to marriage. And it's not all about your feelings. In fact, the Bible states this explicitly at Ephesians 5.32. It says this, this mystery is profound. Literally, the Greek says that the mystery is mega. Marriage is a mega mystery. How many of you can say amen to that? I'm just joking. Don't say amen to that. The Apostle Paul liked to use the word mystery, not to indicate a problem that can never be solved, but to describe something that can now be understood through the gospel, through the good news that God saved us by sending his son Jesus to die for us and then raising him from the dead on the third day and exalting him to the highest position of authority from which he will one day return to judge the earth and save his church. And that's really convenient for us because we're going through this series of messages where we're considering what does the gospel have to say about these variety of issues in our lives. And the Bible teaches us that marriage is not just a convenience for people. It's not just a partnership that is convenient for two people, but it is actually a matter of the gospel. Marriage is a, a, a crucial issue. For many of us it's crucial because, well, we're in one. And so we need to know something about what the scripture teaches concerning marriage. For many of us, it's crucial because you will one day be married. But even for those who are, who are single and remain single, marriage is crucial because it's good for society, but more importantly, because marriage is a profound revelation even if you're not married. Here's the mega mystery of marriage. Marriage is a reflection of Christ and the church. Let's read it in Ephesians 5.32. This time we're going to read the whole verse. It says this. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. We need to pause for a moment and think about this mega mystery of marriage. Paul did not say that marriage is a nice, convenient illustration or image of God's love. God did not create marriage and then decide later, you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of how I, I want to love the church. That's not how it happened. In fact, Paul says it's exactly the opposite of that. That before he created you, before he created marriage, he knew that he was going to save the world by sending his son. And that from the world he would redeem for himself a people. And that that people he was going to love with the life of his son Jesus Christ. 
And so God did not think, oh, that's a nice image for, you know, I'm, I'm going to use marriage now that I've created it because it's kind of a nice image. No, no, no. He created marriage specifically to be an image of his love for his church. In other words, marriage, the very act of marriage is to preach the gospel. It is to say, when it's done well, this is how Christ loves the church and how the church responds to Christ. Now, I don't want to be overly cheesy or churchy, but this means that marriage is about Jesus more than it's about you. That more than about, I got married because I, I love this person, which, you know, I hope you do love your spouse. But more than the romantic feelings you have, marriage is about preaching the gospel and honoring Christ. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have standards or be picky about some characteristics of a spouse, but ultimately, marriage isn't just about your preferences or satisfaction, it's about Jesus. And that's not to say that marriage can't be satisfying, but usually marriage is not satisfying because of the feelings you started with, but because you learn to love one another after the image of Christ's own love. Marriage should be joyful, it should make you happy, but that's not its ultimate purpose. Its ultimate goal is to reveal something about Jesus. Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, again, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. You should preach the gospel in your marriage. That's the big takeaway this morning. You should preach the gospel in your marriage. I'm not saying that you've got to go home and preach a sermon to your husband or wife. Let's talk about what I mean. Let's go back and see how this looks. It starts in Ephesians 5.21. It says this, submitting to one another. Paul's talking to the whole church here in Ephesus. He says to them, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This was an application of the gospel Paul made to the whole Ephesian church were to love one another, to defer to each other, to put each other first, to forgive each other, to bear with one another in love, to be gentle, to be slow to anger, to serve each other. All of these are part of what Paul has already addressed in Ephesians about what it looks like to love and therefore to submit to one another in love. And this submission applies not only to the church holy, but it applies in marriage as well. In marriage, we submit to one another, wife to husband and husband to wife. In other words, there's a mutual submission in marriage, but mutual does not mean exactly the same. The way that the wife submits and the way that the husband submits differs, and that's where Paul begins to unpack how you preach the gospel in your marriage. And before we get into the details, I want to say that because the Bible gives commands to husbands and gives commands to wives, it doesn't mean that every marriage is the same, as if it gives enough of the specific day-to-day -day details that says, you know, here's how everybody's supposed to organize their lives, and every marriage should be cookie-cutter. The verses that we're going to study today, they don't define specific activities and roles. They don't say, wives do the dishes on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, husbands Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, alternate Sundays, but don't do them together that never ends well, okay? That's not what it says. It doesn't tell you the specifics of how to organize the dishes in the cabinets or where to go on vacation or how many kids you're supposed to have or how often you're supposed to be intimate. It doesn't address those things because every marriage is going to be different. Every marriage is gonna be different in a million little ways. The point is that in all these decisions, 
you adopt the attitude and posture toward one another that's represented by Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to Christ so that your marriage preaches the gospel to one another and to the world, no matter who's doing the dishes or taking out the trash. Your marriage is preaching the gospel. And so let's begin. Paul begins in Ephesians chapter five, verses 22 to 24. He says to wives, you should submit to your husbands. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their own husbands. We saw that in Ephesians 5.21, Paul talks about mutual submission, the whole body of Christ submitting to one another. And so this also happens between husband and wife, but Paul applies that mutual submission in differing ways to the husband and to the wife. He states explicitly that wives should submit to their husbands but does not and will not state the same thing explicitly about husbands submitting to their wives. He further will go on to define in verse 33 this submission as a respect for or an honoring of the husband. Now, I know that when you read these verses and you preach them in our culture, you're in a great deal of danger of sounding very misogynistic to tell wives to submit to their husbands. And whenever I preach this passage, I feel like I have to go back and keep providing like provisions and assurances. But I don't want to be apologetic about what the gospel says, what God's word teaches. And so I'm going to say this once. We're going to go over some of the issues once, and then I'm going to be done with it. I'm going to stop, you know, kind of going back, okay? That's how we're going to handle it. We're going to get on with it. The gospel's call to wives is neither easy nor is it popular, but don't worry, the gospel's call to husbands is neither easy nor popular. The gospel's interests are not the same as our culture, and we need to just recognize that right up front. Wives, the gospel's interest for you is not the same. The gospel teaches neither wife nor husband to say, this is about me, I need to be number one, I need to be the head, I need to be the status maker, I need to do all this stuff. It doesn't teach us to do that. That's not the gospel's concern, really, for anyone in any circumstance. And so it's hardly surprising that the gospel offends us when it comes to cultural values regarding the relationships between men and women. We should live out the gospel in our culture. We should not seek to conform the gospel to our culture. And talking about culture, this brings up one of the possible solutions to this difficulty that sometimes people raise of telling wives to submit to their husbands. Couldn't it be that Paul was just speaking to the cultural conditions of the time, and since we have a different understanding today of equality within marriage, that perhaps wives, it's not a big deal anymore, they don't need to submit. Oh, it's true that the Bible does address cultural issues of the time, specific issues that were problems in the first century when the original hearers lived, and, and these need to be interpreted and applied in our culture and undoubtedly, Paul had some specific cultural ideas about marriage in mind, perhaps even some of the inconsistencies and injustices he saw in marriage at the time. However, Paul ties his commands about marriage not to what is culturally convenient. He ties the commands to the gospel itself. And the gospel hasn't changed. He didn't say, wives, submit to your husbands as is normal in culture, but as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Hopefully the church has not stopped submitting 
Christ. And so if this is the image, then that would mean that, well, wives are still called on by the gospel to submit to husbands. Before we move on to talk about what this submission looks like, we need to make one more important observation. I think this is a critical one. To whom does Paul address the command to submit? To the wives. Notice what Paul does not say. He does not say, husbands, make your wives submit. That may seem like a small difference, but it is a big, big difference, isn't it? It's a long way from calling on a wife to exercise personal responsibility and authority in Jesus to submit like Christ himself submitted to the Father than saying, husbands, keep your wives and kids in line because it doesn't say that, does it? There's a big difference between the two. In fact, there's such a big difference that this was a common way of writing in the first century and even before, that people, philosophers and others, would write what was called a household code, and they would instruct specifically husbands, the head of the household, how they were to organize their house, and it didn't address women. It didn't address children. They would just say, husbands, you do this. Keep your wives in line. Here's how you discipline your children. But it never did what Paul did and said, wives, here's your responsibility. Husbands, here's your responsibility. Children even, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. It never took what Jesus had done, because they didn't know what Jesus had done and didn't believe it, and apply it and say, this is for you to do. This is your responsibility. This is God's stewardship and will given to your life. And so when Paul writes this, it's a bit more revolutionary than you might at first think that it is. Paul addresses women directly. He recognizes their inherent value in the Lord and their responsibility and stewardship in the gospel. And the second reason this is notable is because Paul, again, does not tell husbands to make wives submit. And that's an important distinction. Having said all that, what does it mean to submit? Submission implies deference to another, especially deference to someone else's leadership. Paul, notice he doesn't say that wives can't lead in some things or that they won't be better at anything or that their husbands uh, have to be in control of everything or that their place is in the kitchen. Paul does not say anything like that. He simply says that they are, submit, they are to submit to their husbands and it is their responsibility and stewardship before the Lord to do that. And it's not their husband's responsibility to make them submit. And in a moment, we'll see that Paul instructs husbands to preach the gospel in marriage by giving up their lives for their wives as Christ did. And that's important to keep in mind that context because that's an enormous responsibility. And big responsibilities need some level of authority. Imagine that you're given a leadership position at your job. They, they give you, you know, a promotion and they give you a new title. You're, you're, you're now the big kahuna or something like that. And they give you this, this big new title and responsibility. They, they say, you are going to now be held responsible for the company's success and your job depends on it. However, you won't be able to hire anyone you won't be able to fire anyone. You can't restructure anything. You can't change the budget. Basically, your hands are tied. You can't do anything. But you're responsible for it. Have fun. Would you take that job? No, that'd be dumb, wouldn't it? Now think about what God tells husbands they have to do. He says, you need to lay down your life for your wife. Who would be crazy enough to take that job if there wasn't some authority to come with it? 
But notice from whom that authority comes. Wives, notice from whom that authority comes. Does Paul say to husbands, husbands, you gotta take that authority that's yours in Jesus. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, wives, give that authority. That's what submission is in the end, isn't it? It's saying, I recognize that you've been put in this leadership position and I am going to willingly give you the authority necessary to do a good job. That's submission. That's the kind of deference that a wife has. When wives submit, when wives submit to their husbands, they willingly give their husbands the authority they need to do what Christ has called them to do in their family. And without that submission, families can be wrecked and can be ruined. I mean, they can be ruined by husbands who refuse to take up that responsibility as well, but they can also be ruined by wives who refuse to give the authority necessary to carry the load that God has put on the shoulders of a husband. So wives should do this as the church submits to Christ. That's how he calls them to submit to their husbands. The church trusts and obeys Christ, and that trust for your husband means that you, you honor his decisions. It doesn't mean that you can't disagree doesn't mean that you can't have your own opinion, but that you submit your opinion out of respect for the responsibility God has given him. It doesn't mean you can't have an argument. That's not what Paul said. doesn't mean you can't say, I think you're wrong. You can say that, but it just means that you submit out of deference for what Jesus has done, even when you think your husband is not being the wisest. It means that you want to pull with him and for him and not against him. It means that you get on the same page, might be another way to put it, as your husband. What if his directions and his decisions and his leadership are are things that you don't like? Tell him, talk to him, and let him know. But do it in a manner that also means, and that he knows, that you're going to love and support and honor him, even in disagreement. Paul did not say, never disagree with your husband. He said that even in disagreement, you can submit. Unless it's sinful, the Bible says you should submit. It doesn't ask you to submit to things that are sinful. It doesn't say, you know, if your husband's planning to go rob a bank, submit. Let's be be reasonable. We understand what the Bible says and that the command to love Christ is first. But unless it's sinful, the Bible says to take up this attitude of Christ. What if he's wrong about a decision or makes a mistake? Well, You can still honor someone who is imperfect, can't you? He will sometimes be wrong. He will make mistakes, but submission includes forgiveness. And that's something that wives need to offer their husbands, is forgiveness. Because if you don't offer forgiveness to your husband, what happens is bitterness builds up, and rather than polling with him and for him, you start polling against him. And that doesn't look very much like Christ's love for the church or the church's response to Christ. Now, I wanna make one caveat. This is not living with abuse. Submission doesn't mean that you, you put up with abuse in the household, that you submit to you know, beatings or something like that. That is wrong and, and you should get out of that situation if that's you, if, that's, if you're in that situation. Paul is not giving such a blanket statement that means that no matter what happens, no matter how sinful, you just submit to what's happening in your household. You should, though, not have a critical spirit, constantly correct or otherwise trying to uh, lead your husband to believe that you're against him and not for him. There's a difference between being a wife and being a mother. 
and you're not your husband's mother any more than he is your father. And so you have to learn how do we work together and pull in the same direction. And when you submit by respecting and honoring and deferring, what you're doing as a wife is not saying, I'm a lesser person, I'm not as valuable, I don't have skills. You're not saying those things. What you're doing is you are preaching the gospel. When Christ, let me ask you, when Christ became a servant, was he saying, I'm not God? I couldn't just wipe you all out in an instant if I wanted to. I could call for a legion of angels if I wanted and have this little problem taken care of. He wasn't admitting that he was less than us. He was saying, God has given me an authority, but I'm going to use that authority to serve. Is the submission of the wife any different? No, it's not. In fact, it is the same thing. It is saying, I understand the authority God has given me as a woman of God, and I choose to use that authority to honor and reflect Christ in my marriage so that God is glorified and so that my husband is honored. And when I honor him, I'm honoring Christ. And when I honor Christ, I preach the gospel to my husband and to the world. When you submit by respecting and honoring and deferring, you preach the gospel. You take up the attitude of Christ. You're not submitting because you're less valuable. And even if your husband is not a believer, you should submit because you are still preaching the gospel to him. First Peter 3, 1 Peter 3:1-2 says, "Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct." When you submit to your husband, you ensure that the family continues strong and the gospel is not reviled. Titus 2, 3 to 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Submission then from wife to husband should not be seen as something demeaning, it should be seen as preaching because it helps hold families together, it represents Jesus to the husband and it represents Christ to the world. Wives, you should submit to your husbands. And now, Paul gets to the husband's responsibility. He says in Ephesians 5, 25 to 32, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice, this is not transactional. We think that relationships are transactional now. They were just as much transactional then. Husbands were instructed not to love their wives, but how to organize and, and how to get the most out of their households so they could be respected in the community. That's how they were instructed in these household codes. Notice how different Paul's call is to Christian men. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Not try to manipulate the situation to get as much out of her as you can, but give yourself up. He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Husbands, your responsibility is great. You should give yourself up for your wife. 
And this means putting her needs and even her wants before your own. There's no room here for any high-handed or, or behavior or, or some kind of superiority complex. You are not called upon to make your wife submit. As a husband, you're called upon to be worthy of submitting to. That's what you're called to as a husband. And while it's true that God instructs your wife to submit, he instructs you to be a leader in your home who is worth submitting to. A wise husband does not try to keep his wife in her place. He recognizes her skills and wisdom and he encourages her to use those things. He solicits her input in making decisions, especially if she has more skill or experience in something. Listen, you can ask Andrea. If it involves numbers, I don't try to play like I really know a lot here and I'm the man. I just say, hey, you handle this because she teaches math. I'm not that dumb. I mean, I'm dumb, but I'm not that dumb. I'm dumb enough that I don't know the math. I'm not dumb enough that I don't know who to go to who does know the math. And in in a relationship, when there are skills and there are things that one is good at, listen, your, your wife submitting doesn't mean not using her skills. It doesn't mean she doesn't put her talents forward and use them. What it means is that you look for those things and you try to build them up. You're trying to, think about what Jesus did, right? Ephesians chapter five, earlier in this chapter and in chapter four, what does the apostle Paul say Christ has done for the church? He says that he wants to equip her and build her up, and he's given her gifts. In order to do that, he says he gave her apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers so that the church might be equipped and everybody might be built up in Christ. And then he turns and says to husbands, now you act like Christ in your marriage. It means you recognize skill and talent, and you don't say, no, you can't use that. You're supposed to submit. I have to be the best at everything. It means you say, wow, you're really good at that. You ought to put that to use in God's kingdom. Wow, you're skilled in this. We ought to make sure that you're able to be used for what God has gifted you to do. And you make sure that she is able to the best of her ability to do what God has called her to do. He does not, a a wise husband doesn't mask insecurity with machismo, but he wants to draw the best out of his wife so that their partnership in marriage can be as successful as possible and can preach the gospel as fully as possible. Loving your wife means more than providing for her physically. I mean, the TV image of a man or the, the, the internet image of a man who works hard and then comes home to ignore his family, uh, using all he does at work as some kind of excuse for passivity or, or for anger with his family, that didn't come from God. Notice the emphasis Paul places on Christ's example of sanctifying his bride, the church. We can't sanctify our wives' husbands quite like Christ did. We don't die to save their souls. We can't, get involved. we can't step in and take over the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. But husbands should be interested in the spiritual growth and maturity of their wives. They should be. This is part of what Paul is saying here. He's trying to lift your eyes to say, hey, instead of feeling insecure about who you are, Why don't you lead your family to know the Lord? You should be a spiritual champion in your home. And that doesn't mean your wife can never lead spiritually, but it means that you should be the biggest proponent of Christ-likeness and spiritual growth in your home because sadly, here's what often happens. Wives, women, they get involved in church, they wanna come and the husband will sometimes sit home. Or they have to get the children around and get them ready to try to get them to church. And, and, uh, and, and one of the kids is crying. They don't want to go to church. One of the teens is saying, I don't want to go. And the dad's like, yeah, I don't really want to go. I mean, the football game comes on. I don't want to be there either. 
Instead of saying, we're going to church. Instead of making, instead of making the child obey his mother and instead of taking up responsibility and leadership as the father, too many men have become passive and said, you know what, I'm not the champion. That spiritual stuff is for women, but it's not. And listen, being a spiritual champion in your home, it doesn't have to be complicated. You might be saying to yourself, I'm not as spiritually mature as my wife. Okay, fine, you should start maturing and growing, but you don't have to have a PhD in New Testament before you can start becoming a spiritual champion in your home. You simply do things like say, we're going to church. We're going to church this Sunday and next Sunday and just draw it on your calendar because every Sunday we're going to church. You can just mark it down. This is what we're doing so that your kids expect this isn't mom pushing, mom, we gotta go to church. It's dad who's saying we are going to church. Our family values going to church and we're going. Or maybe it means you pray. You pray with your family. You pray with your wife. You know what, you don't have, again, you don't have to have a theology degree to pray with your wife. You, well, I'm, I'm not very good at prayer. Nobody says you've got to be good at prayer. You pray. You pray with her before she goes to work in the morning maybe or before you go to bed at night. And it's really not that complicated. It just takes you being a little less passive and being a little less insecure and saying, God has called me as a man to give myself for my wife. And so, you know what? I may not feel the best equipped but I'm going to start where I can, and I'm gonna become a champion for the things of the Lord in our home, even if I'm not the smartest guy in the room. Right? Sometimes, you know, you, you, you may wanna read the Bible with your wife, and, and you might say, well, and I, I sometimes don't know what it says. Join the club. Okay, you know what? Sometimes I've read the Bible with Andrea. We're reading like, you know, First Chronicles, some genealogy, and, and I'm like, I gotta come up with something. I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to know, you know? And I'm like, I got nothing, like, let's pray. I don't know what this list of names, I, I haven't studied this recently, like I, let's pray. And, and you know what, men? Get a devotional, I don't know, read it, and, and if you don't know what it means, just admit that and then pray with her, but, but be a spiritual champion in your home. You don't have to know everything and be everything to overcome your insecurity and say, you know what, I may not be where I should be yet, but I am going to be what God has called me to be by being a spiritual champion in my home and loving my wife and making sure that even though I may not be where I want to be yet, to be able to instruct her in the things of the Lord and help her, and maybe even she's been a Christian so much longer than you that you're saying I, she knows the Bible better than me, so what? Start where you are and say, we're going to know Jesus together. Amen. Loving your wife has a reward. You're to consider, Paul says, your wife as your own flesh. This is not the, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy nonsense, okay? Paul is calling you to something much higher here, men, than merely saying, I'm gonna try to keep things happy because you know, it gets a little awkward when they're not. That's not what he's saying. That might be funny, we might chuckle, but our interest shouldn't be in just keeping the peace but in building up our wives. You should want your wife to succeed. You should defer to her expertise, her skills, her strengths, and lead the way in working together to be more Christ-like in all of life. You should be so invested in these things that it's, that it's like it's you doing it. That you're cheering her on as if you were the one doing these things. As if her growth is your growth. As if her success is your success. 
because that's ultimately what it is. This is Christ's attitude. The Bible says that he died so that he could have a bride who was spotless and who would be united to him and her success then because your one flesh is your success and her growth is your growth. We're gonna hurry on to close and I just wanna say this before we kinda get to the very end. If you're single and you're wondering, okay, what's this got to do with me? Date in a manner that reflects how you wanna marry. Reverse engineer marriage, right? So if you're going for a marriage that honors Christ, you don't date in a manner that honors the world. If you're saying, we want a relationship that's pure and spotless and preaches the gospel, you do not get there by saying, well, we're gonna be in a relationship that's you know, a little bit lusty and a little bit impure and we're gonna to sleep together and we're gonna to, we're to live together and we're gonna do these things that we know the Lord doesn't want us to do, but we're gonna, eventually we're gonna to get to a good marriage. Well, by God's grace, if you repent, you might, but that's not the way that you should probably think about going about dating. You should think about if this is the goal, if the goal is I'm gonna honor, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give myself up for my wife, she's, she, she's gonna submit or he's gonna give himself up for me and I'm going to submit and together we're gonna preach Christ, I'm gonna preach to him through my submission, uh, I'm gonna preach to her through, through giving myself up for her and we're gonna honor Jesus together and then we're gonna preach to the world because they're gonna see in our relationship a kind of love that isn't just feeling but it is, it is commitment and it is sacrifice and it is a love that endures and we're going to preach Jesus together like that, then you don't get there by, you know, messing around. You date to marry. You consider, is this person, am I going to be equally yoked? Is this person going to fit and help me to grow in Christ? And then you move forward in a manner that honors Jesus in your relationship. And this is all summarized in the last verse of our passage, all that Paul has said to husbands and wives in Ephesians 5.33, he says this, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You can't control your spouse. You can try and you can end up in a manipulative, miserable marriage. What you can do in your relationship is honor Christ. Wives can submit in a manner that honors Jesus regardless of their husband's flaws and mistakes. Husbands, you can give yourself up for your wife even when it's difficult, even if she's difficult. And these things aren't controlling, they're not transactional. This is what real love is. Marriage is an imitation of Christ's love for the church and so we're going to need some help in that. We need the Holy Spirit. Thankfully, Ephesians 5.18 teaches us this, do not be drunk with wine for that's debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God is available to help us to be the husbands and wives that we want to be, that we should be. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, we've been talking about marriage this morning and perhaps you're wondering, well, what's that got to do with, you know, with having a relationship with Jesus and what we've just read today says that it has everything to do with a relationship with Jesus. The Bible says that God loved you to this extent that while you were still a sinner, when you didn't deserve it, God sent his son Jesus to die for your sin. He paid the penalty for your sin. Because you had been separated from God, because you had rebelled against him, God met your need by sending his son Jesus. And now he wants to have a relationship with you. And that relationship comes like this. Jesus gave himself up for you, and you submit yourself to Jesus by putting your faith, your trust in him. Maybe you've come today and you've 
prayed a prayer. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've been going through difficulty in your life and you've sensed God drawing you, but you're wondering what that means. What it means is a relationship with God in which you understand his love for you and you begin to submit your life to him by trusting him. And that begins by saying, Jesus, I trust that you died for me and I believe that God raised you from the dead and I wanna give my life to you today. And if that's you, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, and you wanna begin that this morning, I'm gonna ask you to do this very quickly. Would you just lift up your hand? Is there anybody like that? You don't have that relationship with God through Jesus, that personal relationship, and you wanna begin that. Thank you. This isn't about you being good enough or anything of that nature. It's about what Christ has done for you. I'm gonna pray. My words don't have the power to save you, but Jesus will save you when you put your trust in him. And I just want you to, I wanna help you to be able to express that trust in him this morning. And so would you make this prayer your prayer as I pray. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I come to you. And I thank you so much for what you've done for me through your son, Jesus. I thank you that you sent him to be the sacrifice for my sin. And I believe in that today. I pray that you would forgive me for my past and for running from you and for ignoring you. And I pray that you would help me today to submit to you Today, Jesus, I trust you. I trust that you're good, that you gave yourself for me, and I believe that you are alive because God raised you from the dead. And from here on, I wanna follow you. I wanna submit to you. And so today, I give my life over to you, and I wanna live through you from now on. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, there are gonna be some partners, some prayer partners here at the end of the service. They would love to talk with you, help you understand where do you go from here. This is the response, okay? I need you to do this. I don't mean to be, cra I don't mean to be um, uh, crass, inappropriate, but if you've got a phone, you might wanna get it out so you can take a picture because we don't have a lot of time, okay? There are some questions I want you to think about. So it starts like this. Take some time and answer these questions. Wives. Do I willingly give my husband the authority he needs to lead? Does my husband know that I am for him and that I respect and trust him? Does my submission to my husband reveal a faithfulness and commitment that preaches to him and to others who see me? Do I help my husband rather than constantly criticize? Do I support my husband's attempts to lead spiritually? Husbands, these are for you to think about. Am I actively leading spiritually or have I been passive? Am I a champion for Christ-likeness and walking in the spirit even in my weakness? Does my wife know that I want what's best for her and will give up myself to make that happen? Do I use authority to serve my wife? Am I insecure and upset when my wife doesn't act in what I think is a submissive manner or do I continue to give up myself for her even when it's not easy? For those of you who are single or maybe dating, you might wanna ask, am I willing to take on the gospel responsibility of marriage? Does the way I date reflect movement toward a marriage that proclaims the purity and unity of Christ's relationship to the church? Is my dating transactional or gospel-oriented? Would you stand with me? We're gonna close in prayer. I encourage you to, to think about these things and then husbands and wives, maybe talk about them later on this evening, uh, this afternoon. And, 
and pray together over your marriage. But I want to pray for you now. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for the grace you've given us and the opportunity that you give us as husbands and wives to preach the gospel. Sometimes, Father, the way that we think about marriage is so small that we're merely thinking about how can we get through this or we're thinking about our own happiness. But I pray, Father, that you would expand our vision of marriage this morning so that we can rightly proclaim Jesus in it. Lord, we do want to be happy. We do want to be joyful. We do want to meet each other's needs. But Lord, we ask that you would help us to do it with a vision of how we are proclaiming Christ to one another and to the world. Give us your grace, Lord, that we might be humble and submitted first to you and also to one another so that our love for each other will be a reflection of Christ. And Lord, I pray for marriages. Those that are struggling, would you bring wisdom and healing? Those that are being passive and they're disconnected, would you restore intimacy like you want to have with your church? Lord, those who are who are living on the outs with one another right now and, and they think that their, their marriage may be over. We pray for a healing that's supernatural that comes from repentance and comes from humility. And Father, we ask that you would help our marriages in this body to reflect Christ as much as we can. We love you, Lord. We thank you for that and we believe for it in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. We will see you again tonight as we meet together for prayer. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.